0: Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. Now today's guest mentor I'm very excited to share with you is Amy Radin. And Amy's a rather special guest to bring on the show today because not only is Amy helping drive a better future for finance and accounting with her work with AICPA, but it's not often we can get to bring on the show one of the most powerful women in banking, as honored by the US Banker magazine also rated by Businessweek as a top 25 global champion of innovation, and someone who served in the C-suite among a number of Fortune 500 financial services companies. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Amy's also an author as well. So, very honoured to have her on the show. We had a very fast and engaging conversation over the Christmas period. And the really cool thing was that even though Amy's massively experienced and worked in, in, in a number of very senior roles, The content of the conversation was very practical because Amy was just reading off experience after experience of how she did things like convincing her colleagues to make a big jump into digital in a financial services organization, which was far from the traditional way her organization used to do things. Also, how she gained the support of her colleagues when investing in certainty. We all know about that in finance in terms of trying to get people to to make the right decisions about the future and very much. Amy talks about the importance of having that senior level sponsorship to make it happen. Also how she ended up in finance and accounting without really any prior background in it. And one of my favourite bits as well of the conversation is the importance of resourcefulness in any endeavour we undertake in our careers, whether it be in finance or even outside our careers too. So look, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please check out our show notes, transcripts, ways to connect with Amy useful resources mentioned, and more at sitnshow.com. Also, for those of you who haven't visited the website in a while, it was revamped as well over the holidays, so would love to get your feedback on what works well, what could work better. And I'm told it's been optimized, which I'm told means you can access the resources quicker now, which in theory should help you make an impact in your finance career even sooner and much faster. So I think that's enough for me. So without further ado, over to Amy and the show. Amy, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's our pleasure, Amy and it was what prompted me reaching out to you in the first place and having our conversation earlier as well. Is an article I'd read in a finance magazine, but you're not from an accounting or finance background per se, so would you mind maybe sharing your story with our audience in terms of your career journey to where you are now?
1: Sure. And I'm definitely not from a finance and accounting background, although I do have a graduate degree in business. I built my career really as a marketer. I spent about 14 years at American Express doing direct marketing. And when this thing called the Internet came along, I saw the connection between what I knew how to do, which was work with large data sets in a regulated environment and technologists to deliver value, in a very measurable way. And I said, Hey, that that should be really useful in the internet. And so I jumped to a I was very lucky. I was recruited to lead the digital transformation of Citigroup's credit card business, which in the which at the time the US business was about a five billion dollar bottom line. And in those days nobody knew anything about digital, but I saw the connectivity between the basic skills I had to develop in direct marketing. And so even though, so to answer your question directly, even though I don't come from a finance or accounting background, I think the combination of my education, but more importantly, growing up professionally in direct marketing, which is all about measuring, it's about testing and learning. It's about working very collaboratively with your data, your analytics and your technology partners to create value. Uh, for customers and to return value to your other stakeholders, particularly shareholders, that I had, I was very grounded in the role of analytics in marketing decisions. And that, that set me up really well to work in digital, which initially was a little bit of a wild west. Nobody knew how to measure anything, but I had that foundation. And then I moved on to become City's first chief innovation officer, which again, was just building, was a role I made up. But really building upon, (laughs) building again, it it all ties back to my background in direct marketing. That skill set has really carried me through my career.
0: But I suppose if you're delivering value and you can demonstrate it via measurement and so on, I think that's one thing we, we share a lot with our audience is you can pretty much define a role for yourself in an organization. I mean, what organization is not going to keep someone on the books who's delivering value? They're going to put them in positions of influence. And I think that's where a lot of our listeners in finance and CFOs, are sort of saying we've got this broad visibility in our organizations. We understand and can connect the dots across various different departments, areas, teams. We can measure value. We can try and communicate it. So we've got quite an important role, an opportunity to add meaningful value in our organizations. But I think some of them are probably only coming to that realization now Amy, when you spotted that digital trend and understood it, how do you convince people that this is an area worth pursuing? This is something worth following up. This is something worth, I say, investing and spending time on.
1: It it can be very hard. And first of all, I'll tell you, um, you're never going to convince everybody. That was something that I realized when I, I, remember when I first got to my, this first big digital job, I went around and interviewed all my colleagues to ask them, well, I'm here, introduce myself, what are your expectations? And I'd say a third of them thought like, thank God you're here. We need somebody to really focus on digital. This is very important. A third of them were like, well, we're open to the possibility. We're not sure that this is worth anything, but we want to see what you can figure out. And a third of them are like, why do we need to do this? And so, I think you have to accept at least I accept that you're not going to convince everybody. And so, after that, so once i we kind of figured out, well, who are our allies, we started to we developed a really robust process for experimentation that right. was very collaborative and that pulled in not just our finance partners, but also I was lucky to have great resources available to me in who had decision sciences training. So real statisticians, people from the risk management function. So when you're in a credit card business, there's, it's a business with heavily analytically driven, right? And so you have a lot of analytic talent, not just the finance team. And so we tried to create a very collaborative process to come up with hypotheses that were, if you do this online, then what happens to customer behavior and how does that affect the P&L and the balance sheet? But it's really, really important to set up, to get the buy-in first to testing and experimenting with well-constructed objective tests that aren't biased by past history. And I think that's where finance Many, some, where many people coming from the analytics world have to do would benefit from a little bit of a mindset shift because you have to let okay. go of the baggage of how you've always measured things in the past and what's always worked in the past and really, really take a clean sheet approach to testing out hypotheses, just the way a scientist would. You have to think yeah. like a scientist in the lab. You don't want to bias your outcomes. You want to do clean hypotheses and and test them to, and then measure customer behavior.
0: In terms of measuring customer behavior, I'm imagining you're not talking of measuring all customer behavior but probably small smaller samples or like these AB Absolutely. tests. Not everything has to be measured.
1: No, you, you you really you especially you have to look for you have to look for the 80/20 and by that I one of my old CIOs he used to say find the 20% that's gonna actually add 110% of the value, not just 80%. So prioritizing is really important, but here's what we did in payments. And I think you could do this in any business. We, We said, okay, let's think about what are the customer behaviors that drive the financials of their relationship with the bank. And it's very simple. People get a credit card, they keep the credit card, they use the credit card. They pay the bill or they don't pay the bill they extend payment or they don't extend payment they take advantage of a loyalty program or they don't they go into collections or they don't and so you come up with seven or eight it's not a very long list they get a balance consolidation they get a line increase that's pretty much it i pretty much named them all and so you start with the customer and what is their relationship about with the product then we'd say okay what if people apply for the card online versus through traditional channels in the mail? Like, what happens? That triggered a whole lot of work because we discovered in our initial application tests, we were using risk scoring models from direct mail online. And it turned out those models drove adverse selection. So then we had to rebuild our scoring models to be channel specific. But if you end up with a very, with a big, it's a tree that keeps sprouting more yeah, and more a, yeah. branches. But if you start with what are the customer behaviors that define the ultimate financial outcomes and start saying, well, what if I do this? What if I do that? And the what ifs, if you're able to bring together people with diverse perspectives, and this we brought people together for brainstorming to talk about what should we test, what makes sense to the group, and then constructed the experiment. So it took us in say just in new card acquisition, which is really one of the core engines of the business model for that business is the ability to bring in profitable new cards. Took us about two years to figure that out of constant iteration and experimentation and the rebuilding of the models and all that, but just work define the branches on that tree and then work them in a collaborative process with a diverse group of people. And what we did that was very successful is we started with the customer and we said, okay, what are the key customer behaviors that define the financial outcomes with our business, which in our case was a credit card business. And there's a list that you can derive pretty simply and i think this would be the same for most businesses people get the product they keep the product they use the product they pay their bill or they don't pay their bill they call customer service or not with a credit card business you might get a line increase you might consolidate a balance um, you might get an additional card so you get those are those are pretty much it you're in the loyalty program or not and so you think about all those behaviors and you list them out then what we did was we brought together small but diverse groups of people from different functions in the business so obviously product technology our decision sciences partners cfo was part of it different people but all people who had a little bit of a creative bent and were excited about contributing to the digital transformation of the business so an open-minded mindset and we'd brainstorm and we'd go okay let's take the core customer behavior. So start with getting the product because in the case of the credit card business, acquisition of new customers is really one of the core engines of the business model. So you knew that that would be very high impact. So you have to prioritize, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, okay, what happens to the customer relationship when the card is acquired through the internet versus through the traditional channels, which in our case were direct mail or telemarketing. And initially, what was, so when you start to do, you start down this path and all of a sudden you have to add a lot of branches to your tree. Because one of the things we discovered was that there was very high negative selection when we took the credit scoring models mm-hmm. from the direct mail channel and applied them online. And so that led to us saying, okay, well, is the channel bad or is there something wrong with our modeling application? And in fact, we discovered that we had to develop channel specific credit scoring models. And that required an immense amount, as you can imagine, of analytic support and also convincing internally that it was worth putting resources against that because some people had the initial reaction of, oh, this is a bad channel. And we're like, no, 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 no. The model and the analytic approach is wrong. And so you just go through this process of you start with the customer behaviors, you prioritize which ones are the most significant And then if you're able to bring together a diverse group of people in terms of skills and mindset to brainstorm the what ifs, that can lead you to constructing experiments and you just keep drilling and drilling and drilling until you get to the answer. And basically we did that across all the customer behaviors. And that was the foundation for transforming a $5 billion business for or the digital era. It was really exciting.
0: Yeah, where, where do I start? There's so much to ask questions on there, A.V. And it's only to flesh it out for our audience that the first one that comes to mind is when you're challenging, perhaps you've uncovered, oh, maybe it's our model that we need to review and develop and it's going to take a bit of investment to, to solve for that. How do you get people to prioritize investing in uncertainty? Because okay. at the start of our budget's already done and it's probably a capital budget and an operational expenditure budget. How do we convince people to invest in this bit of work that will deliver a return in the future or has a good chance of delivering a return? Like any sort of tips to get our CFOs and finance professionals to to loosen their grip on the budget a bit?
1: So I I did a few things and I think, first of all, I'll say on a personal note, I'm I'm in the middle of five children and my mother will tell you (laughs) I'm nothing if not persistent. (laughs) And I had a team of a very, very strong of who really believed that this was critical to the business and were very passionate. So I think you have to have that passion because a lot of people, so there will be people who will think you're crazy and you're diverting resources in a bad way. But we did a couple of things that really helped us. First of all, work very hard to build alliances around the organization and not just with senior people, but with the people in the middle who actually do most of the work. Right. Mm. So you need senior sponsorship, and I had incredibly strong sponsorship for this work from our CEO, so that really mattered. We also had an unbelievably open-minded and forward-thinking CFO, who, was, who I went to frequently for guidance on advice. So I took the time to understand what were his expectations, what were the, where That's was right. he gonna set the bar, and really engaged his team. I used to keep a list that I call the army of the willing of people who would reach out to me from the middle of the organization who really cared about the digital transformation work and wanted to be involved. And I, those are the people I would invite to the brainstorms because I knew they were, I knew they wanted to help. They wanted to participate and they saw it as very critical to their personal career development. And I think that's another really important point. And I think not to stereotype finance people, but very often they pursue the argument on totally rational grounds you come up with the spreadsheet and it's all about the numbers. And we all know that numbers can be used very creatively to tell any story. Yes. So that's a whole other conversation. But you have to keep in mind that people are motivated to do things at work on emotional grounds as well. Marketing 101 is kind of what's in it for me. How is this gonna affect my career? Am I gonna look smart in front of my boss? Is this gonna help me meet my goals and get my my bonus or my increase at the end of the year? How is this gonna make me look in front of my colleagues? Can I be successful at this? Am I affiliating with people in the organization who have influence? So let's face it, all of those factors play a role. And so building that coalition, that army of the willing, is is actually quite important. And you need to have strong cross-functional support for any innovation or transformation effort to succeed. And so you can find people all over the organization who see the future and want to be helpful. Along with that, I can't emphasize enough the importance of senior level sponsorship. So I think kind of working both ends of the organization and being practical. I think this model, this process that we came up of saying, let's look at the customer behaviors and build a disciplined test and learn process. It was very practical and people could relate to it because really that is, it's all based on how to direct marketers drive their business and a credit card business was fundamentally a direct, it's a direct consumer business. And so our process was built off the process people have been using in the sector for decades. It wasn't strange. It was familiar. That's a good, so that by mm. itself takes down yeah. the risk, Yes. the perception of high risk.
0: Yes. That's music to accountants and finance professionals here is, is, is reducing the risk, making it a bit more familiar. Uh, and again, but it's not stereotyping. Yeah, let, it's just how our, our minds are wired.
1: Yeah. And I'll let, the other thing that I think is particularly important is you really have to, founders talk a lot about fail fast, fail cheap and we'll, we have to talk about failure on this call too, but we never sought the big budgets early on for what we were doing. We said, "Let's how small does the test need to be mm-hmm. to get a statistically legitimate result? And the good news about good testing things through digital, it's very inexpensive.
0: That's a great so, point.
1: Yeah, so if you could set up small tests you're not spending a lot of money and you know that tests don't always work. You have to engineer into the process the expectation that not all tests work. If they all work, you wouldn't need to test. But so there's that expectation that some things are not going to work. Hopefully they'll all yield learnings that are yeah. valuable for the next test to be better.
0: I'll just take an There's so many questions I could ask you right now, but there was, you know, one thing that did come to mind that was more a comment that. I remember hearing somewhere there's no such thing as a lack of resources more lack of resourcefulness and is that resourcefulness improved when i think you mentioned it a lot you're bringing in people with diverse mindsets and skills is that key to resourcefulness in your mind
1: absolutely and it's funny that you mentioned that because i don't know if you've looked at my book the change makers playbook but there's a whole chapter in the book about resourcefulness
0: <laughs> i totally believe um, it sorry i hadn't but that's a and great coincidence I tell
1: a great story about i've really been impressed by the resourcefulness that i've seen in the startup world and when i left the corporate world the last five or six years i've been i have set up, I've created a number of advisory relationships with founders. And I'll tell you, there's a founder I met a few years ago and he's one of the people I profile in my book who was wanted to, had this idea about a medical device that basically was almost like an airbag, an inflatable belt that if a senior citizen was wearing it and they fell, it would automatically inflate and shield the fall. And the statistics, the number of deaths that occur and like horrible injuries that befall seniors mm-hmm. from falling is it's like a, it's a health crisis at least in the United States and I'm sure it is around the world so this is he wanted to solve a very important problem but you can imagine the bar on proving the validity of a medical device is very 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 high and he had no money he's a founder the guy's four children so he's not some kid in a garage you know he actually had a family to support for his first proof of concept he actually went on a Saturday with his son to an auto parts junkyard, cut out airbags from junked cars that were still usable, took them to his tailor and had her modify them for him to build into a prototype. And that prototype was sufficient to convince a hospital system to do an alpha test with him which set him on his way. And this is a going business now that's building up to be very successful. So I always tell that story because I'm like, people who are in established companies, there's an expectation of the budget that you need to do the market research problem, to do the test, to build a prototype. And it's been eye-opening for me, having spent several decades in the corporate world where I had those expectations to seeing what founders do. And I've really hit the reset button. You have to be a lot scrappier and say, like, what do I, what's the problem I'm really trying to solve? And what do I really need to solve it? And if I strip away the bureaucratic requirements that may exist in my company, what do I really need to do? And it's amazing what you can get done and what you can get permission to do. Yeah, If you start to abandon, it's a matter of reframing your assumptions of what does it really take to solve the problem that I really need to solve now so that I can get permission to go to the next step.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I love the questions, but you're really just setting it down to its essence. So no, I know I, I love that, Amy. And look, I want to be respectful of your time. And I really did want to ask also was as much as your background didn't come up through accounting and finance, you are influencing and impacting our profession at the moment with your role on the board of AICPA. How did you find your way into that position?
1: Right. So that's a funny story. And I'd say it started with, I'm open-minded. I like to try new things. And so I will never say no to something that seems plausible. And so I've left the corporate world and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I knew I was ready to turn the page and start a new chapter. And I was trying to understand how I could apply my expertise in moving From an insight to a concept to commercial reality, as an outsider working with executives in a number of companies, and so I started to get active on social media, mostly on LinkedIn. And one day I got this cold outreach from an executive at the AICPA to keynote their big uh, digital conference that they hold in the U.S. every December, Digital CPA. And I'm like, great! I I'd love to do that because I knew I was writing my book. And so speaking is important. And so AICPA SEMA was actually the first entity that paid me as a consultant or an advisor to do anything. So I will long remember them. And one thing led to another. They invited me to speak to their major firms group. They have a big meeting of just their top firms every year. And I just started to build relationships with the organization. And I love the fact that it's mission-led because coming, and it's really, centered on the membership. Because coming from the corporate world, where so much, especially publicly traded companies, so much of the orientation is on shareholders, right? And so I love the fact that the customer, the user, the member was really at the center. I love the culture and the values. And so we were just in touch for a couple of years. And one day, one of their executives who runs their tech division, which is called cpa.com, gave me a call and said, hey, we have several seats on our board. For people who do not have accounting and finance credentials, would you have an interest in joining our board? And I just about flew out of my seat. I was so excited because (laughs) I had a goal of being on a board. It's very hard to join a prominent board. Hmm. And I love the fact that I could really, that I was really bringing something unique to the team. And so I've been, you know, I've been serving the association for I think about four years and it's, you has know, been a very mutually exciting relationship. And that was how I came to publish in FM Magazine as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, I that, and again, that's where I, I spotted, because I, I, I heard your name in some circles and I just couldn't place. And then when I read the article, ah, now I know. And it's actually really, I was really delighted you took the time to write that article. And I know we've not covered, there's loads in there we haven't covered on the show and even bits of your book we haven't even covered yet but what what for me was i just like it seemed very practical how you wrote it and even down to the point i think you answered the question in there do we need a cio or not a chief innovation officer or not and this, i love how you answered that with two ways which was yes you if you had one to be good because you've got the expertise someone could see across it or whatever and then you got the other one no because then you're sort of taking responsibility away from everyone it's everyone's responsible really to innovate and try and do better and so on And i love that answer
1: Having been a chief innovation officer twice, yeah. I, you know, I have mixed feelings about really... it because I think it's very, when I first became the chief innovation officer at City, what I noticed was that it sends a very strong signal to the organization that management cares about this topic because people read a lot into titles and work structures. So the fact that there were resources being dedicated, there were people who were saying like, thank God, like they yeah. recognize this is important. And the other positive is that there really is a unique set of skills and capabilities that accelerate and increase the likelihood that any innovation program will succeed. And so if you want to get anything done, you got to have the right skills and capabilities. So it forces a focus. On the other hand, it does cause some people to say, oh, they're taking care of it. Yeah. And it it's- truly is a team sport. You must bring in, It's not innovation is not a technology problem. It's Mm. a business, it's a business opportunity that requires all functions and expertise areas to contribute, but maybe to contribute in not ways, not to bring their old bag of tricks. (laughs) They've got to do, they've got to unlearn and relearn some new skills to contribute productively because it does have different, it has its own requirements.
0: Yeah, I love that. that. That's a great bit of advice. Actually, Amy, thinking about it, you know, you've been giving us great advice. What's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? Oh...
1: I've gotten so much advice over the years. It's tough to filter it down um, right to one. I think one of the best pieces I think knowing knowing what it is you're passionate about and really sticking to that, not falling victim to what's popular, but sort of being true to yourself, I think is a starting point to having a successful career. I mean I, I swam against the tide. Sometimes I did things that were not the typical things to do, but I said, this is what I really care about. I know I'm going to work hard and commit to it, so I darn well be doing want to be doing things that I care about. I think also it's, you know, Nike's slogan is just do it. You have to, innovation is not something where you can sit on the sidelines and judge from PowerPoints or spreadsheets. You have to be in the game. And so if you have a concept, if there's something that comes up that seems viable. There's some basic logic to it. There's a hypothesis that's worth exploring. You've got to go do it. You've got to find ways to actually be in the game.
0: Yeah, fantastic advice. And I suppose, look, in terms of resources, our our audience could could turn to, I know you mentioned your book there, if I've got it right, The Changemakers Playbook.
1: Yeah, it's called The Changemakers Playbook, How to Seek, Seed, and Scale Innovation in Any Company. You can also go to my website, which is com, And there's some free content there on the book. I have a newsletter. So I'm happy to be a resource. This is really at this point in my career, you know, I thought a lot about purpose and really I feel like what really gets me excited is using my expertise to help people drive the success of their innovation efforts. And I wanted particularly to speak to the finance function because People in this function have such an important role to play and bring such important training and skills. And so helping people in this area understand how they can contribute because their role is so critical is something that has taken out a lot of meaning to me because I know how important my finance and analytics partnerships for me and my team in all the roles that I've held, they're, they're vital.
0: That's, that's great. I think our, our audience are probably falling in love with you and what you're saying because it makes it probably feel more appreciated. I think so they should. We've got a tremendous opportunity to facilitate a lot of these change and innovation conversations. Either bring our own expertise or yeah. at least make sure the right things are getting done.
1: Yeah, and if I could give one piece of advice, I guess it's next time you go to a meeting with your colleagues and people bring up some idea that you think is like absolutely nuts, before you express that opinion, catch your breath, and just ask one simple question. Like just say, you know, that's kind of interesting. Can you tell me more about that? Mm -hmm. Because very often, if you drill down a couple of layers, you will find there's something there. And if that first reaction is, what a crazy idea, you've got to ask yourself, okay, am I bringing my preconceived ideas to the table? And maybe I need to listen to this differently. So I just it's find that's a very, very valuable question. And it's one as I do some angel investing when I've heard a lot of crazy pitches from founders. <laughs> and I always ask that question, like, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? And there's always something else there that you didn't realize.
0: Yeah, I am. Um, that's the, one of the things I actually miss about the lockdowns and everything like that, Amy, is there's, there's hallway conversations where you just walk in between meetings or whatever just walk around to see how people are doing and then you can have those moments and it's like there's probably something there if you just took the time to delve a little deeper
1: yeah i really miss that i mean i think that a lot of a lot of talk about productivity from work from home and how people are more productive i worry about the loss of serendipity serendipity that's the word serendipity how you capture that because so much i can think back so many of the great outcomes that my digital and innovation teams have achieved over the years have been because of they they came out of serendipitous conversations or even the things I'm doing now the advisory relationships I've built the fact even that I wrote the book came out of a serendipitous (laughs) encounter with someone I met networking years ago who's a journalist who after listening to me yammer on and on about innovation said like you should write a book (laughs) and he planted that seed in my head and so if I hadn't had that encounter, somebody who a friend of mine asked me to meet, like I never would have done that. And it's been, helped me reframe my entire career. So I think you, we all need to find ways to have those serendipitous encounters cause, and, and listen and take advantage of them. They're not, they're often seen as unproductive time. I think they're the most productive time. And we, we have to find ways to build that back into our days
0: I I love that. Yeah, it's just just everyone's focused on on how great the productivity has been. But really, what's been the opportunity cost of that extra productivity on the serendipity moments that that we all know business is, yes, about execution and a bit of luck probably as well?
1: Yeah, we've become very task list oriented. You know, I'm sitting here with my book, and I got my list of stuff I got to do today. But you know, (laughs) We all need some time for our minds just to wander. I'm really lucky. We have a puppy and I go for walking for walks every day and walking is great for creativity and you just let your mind go and that's, we all need to do that. Yeah, even I, I, finance people
0: need to do that. I, Well Probably, spe- especially, especially finance people need to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, because it's very easy to get stuck behind our desks. So yeah, that's some more great advice, Amy. And um, look again, I don't know where to start, but I'm recapping. But it was just an amazing conversation. Really enjoyed it. You, you, you've made something, you know, a concept around innovation change. Very um, practical and accessible during our conversation. Some great bits of advice in there as well. I suppose in terms of wrapping up, would you have any maybe parting thoughts for our audience?
1: I think we're all we're in a world now where the old model for careers of go to school, get my degree and certification, go to work and be a practitioner is fading away fast. And I think it's really important for people in the finance function to really. Any place to heed the words of Alvin Toffler, just we all have to learn, unlearn, and relearn, and find ways to boost your curiosity and keep learning and find, think about how you can take the fundamental skills that you have that are so vital to this area and reshape them a little bit. I think it will be very satisfying and you will make yourselves incredibly valuable to whatever organization you're serving.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And I love how you brought the conversation back to around value again, which is where we started. So Amy, thank you so much for being such a great guest on Strength in the Numbers today.
1: Thanks. Really fun to meet you. Thank you so much and happy holidays. Um,
0: so there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show if you'd like to know more about our guest today their bio and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. there you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows read the latest blogs there's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter